Hi, Jasmine Lopez here. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and click on the big donate button. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks, and here's the show. This week on Making Contact. In this global theater of the ebb and flow of power between reactionary right and revolutionary left, we take a close look at how two of the longest-armed rebellions on opposite sides of the world, the FARC in Colombia and the National Democratic Front in the Philippines, are attempting to reconcile with the establishment. What are the terms? What complications surface? Are there power vacuums? And are there unintended consequences? I'm your host, RJ Lozada. Stay tuned. As members of the FARC, Colombia's largest rebel group, embark on their last march to demobilization camps, after half a century of war with the government, and the government begins peace talks with the ELN rebels, a series of assassinations has shaken the prospects for peace. Human rights defenders, left-wing activists, land rights advocates, indigenous and black community leaders, all supporters of the peace process, are being assassinated in rural areas of the country and many others intimidated and threatened. By the end of April of this year, 32 rural leaders have been killed as neo-paramilitary groups move in to assert their control. The situation has many worried that it could sabotage the fragile peace accord and its implementation. Luis Gallo reports from the Antigua province of Colombia. Also, an advisory for our listeners, the following segment has graphic descriptions of killings. On the morning of January 10th, a group of heavily armed men in an SUV abducted Jose Gilmer Cartagena from a market in El Cerro, a village in northwest Colombia. The next day, his lifeless body was found on a country road with grisly sounds of torture. He had more than 32 stab wounds. His throat was sliced in four places, and his tongue had been cut into pieces. While I was there, I received the news of the death of the leader in our farmers' association. That's Eduardo Lopez. He's a farmer and community leader who worked closely with Cartagena in the area. He had to flee a few days after his colleague was killed there. They killed him, and I got very scared. I called a friend, and they knew that I was second on the list. Cartagena and Lopez worked for an organization seeking land restitution for peasants who lost their property during Colombia's civil war. He was also a member of the leftist political party Marcha Patriotica, or Patriotic March. Now his voice has been silenced. And so have the voices of at least 48 other activists who have been murdered since Colombia signed the peace deal with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, last November. Guerrilla leaders and human rights organizations are attributing these killings to right-wing paramilitary groups. They say that the murders of these activists could destabilize or even destroy the peace deal, which took four long years to finalize. Yo creo que aquí hay unas cosas muy claras y hay unas... Things are very clear. Here is an extreme right-wing force that wants to destabilize this peace process. That's Leonfredi Muñoz, who I met in a cafe in Bello, about an hour north of Medellin. He's a human rights defender, and in Colombia, that's one of the most dangerous jobs a person could have. He survived six assassination attempts. Leonfredi is also the director of Fenalpaz, an NGO that partners with rural organizations. He told me that many of the activists who have been murdered had been working on issues like land reform or environmental protection. Their work often pits them against local and multinational companies that are trying to develop infrastructure projects or large agribusiness projects in the countryside. I think that the peace process is being put at risk, and we are seeing paramilitary groups fill in the void the FARC is leaving. 
and they're filling it with blood and bullets. Eduardo, who's in his 60s, fled to Medellin days after the murder of Cartagena. He rushed to sell his business and only got about half the price it is worth. But he and his wife had to get out quickly. Eduardo says he's not sure if they can go back. I felt really bad about how easy it is for these people to act and be accomplices of the state and the level of impunity. That really frightened me. That's why I'm here in Medellin, very afraid because I know they have many tentacles. They're also sending a clear message they will try to kill anyone who gets in their way. The Colombian government refuses to admit that these killings are systematic and even that there are paramilitary groups currently operating in the country. Many of the paramilitary groups were formed in the 1980s with the support of the state and the armed forces to help wealthy landowners fight groups like the FARC. They demobilized in 2005 under a controversial peace treaty, but few were brought to justice and many refused to lay down their weapons. Now, the government refers to them as criminal gangs, not paramilitary groups, and categorizes the assassinations committed by these groups as isolated cases. However, the human rights group Somos Defensores says more than 80 community leaders were killed by these paramilitary groups in 2016 alone. The numbers for 2017 are already looking much worse. Eh, el gobierno nacional... To say that these killings are not systematic is to say that they are political, which is even more worrisome. That's Clara Navarro, who works for an NGO that is currently offering assistance and protection to Eduardo and his wife. The community leaders start to pose a huge problem for these neo-paramilitary groups. And we define them as neo-paramilitary because they are direct product of those paramilitary groups that existed in Colombia and continue to operate with the same objectives. Clad explains that rural community leaders represent a threat to the neo-paramilitary groups because, under the peace process, displaced farmers will be given back the land they were forced to flee by the conflict. That's because the land is rich in natural resources, and those who control it can continue profiting from it. Peace is what's at stake here. There's a thin line between war and peace, because I feel there is a fragility in the peace accord due to the killings of our rural leaders, who are a big obstacle to the elites who now own the land. And you know, the people can make a lot of money in these times of war and conflict. Clara takes me to San Carlos, about four hours east of Medellin. A decade ago, the small town of 20,000 was ravaged by violence from paramilitary groups. More than 1,500 residents were killed and hundreds disappeared. Most people fled and slowly returned to San Carlos after several years away. Today, it's a relatively peaceful place, but the wounds run deep and the collective trauma is felt by its residents. I meet Angela Moreno, who tells me about the challenges facing human rights activists like her who are active in the movement to preserve people's land and water rights. San Carlos, es un San Carlos is a paradise in terms of water resources. And it's the focus of many interests. Its wealth has made it attractive and caused this armed conflict because the dispute has not been between communities, but rather for land. Human rights defenders say paramilitaries are killing activists in order to keep people off the land and develop their own illegal enterprises, including gold mining and coca fields. Paramilitary groups use barbaric methods to drive people off their land. As the violence escalated in San Carlos, and more and more people were forced to flee, four hydroelectric power plants were built near the town. 
Because of the ongoing violence, there was little protest against the construction. This region is under very strong interests, and under those interests, many lives have been sacrificed. That's Daisy Herrera, a 46-year-old environmental engineer who works with Angela as an activist for water and land rights in the region. The number one problem for these hydroelectric projects has been what to do with the people who live and own this land. And from 1995 until 2006, we saw a violent outburst by paramilitary groups against the people to displace them from their land. And the methods of violence they used to force people out were terrifying. They used a horrible tactic. They would open the farmers' bodies up with a chainsaw, fill them up with stones and dump them into the river. Activists like Daisy and Angela now fear that such horrific acts of violence could return to the region. In Colombia, we have the curse of being rich in natural resources, and the interest to control them has led to violence, displacement, and blood. Both of them received death threats recently after they tried to stop a hydroelectric project near San Carlos. I was walking home with my two daughters, and as I opened the front door, two men on a motorcycle sped towards us, full speed. And I opened the door. I already had the key in my hand, and I told my daughters to go in right now. The men told her to stop snitching, or she would end up like her brothers. Angela's three brothers were killed by paramilitaries several years ago. Back in Medellin, I meet with the chief peace advisor, Luis Pardo. He agrees that the situation is troubling. He says the government needs to act fast to secure territories previously controlled by the FARC and protect community leaders and activists. The state should give priority to the defense of these community leaders and design security schemes to guarantee their ability to do their social and community work without being threatened. That's a challenge the government has, as well as society and the international community. But there's little hope that things will improve quickly. The government can't assign bodyguards to everyone who's under threat. There are no exact figures, but estimates put the current number of members of illegal paramilitary groups at 6,000, not counting those ex-FARC members who are refusing to give up their weapons. Back at the cafe, Leonfredi Muñoz tells me he worries that as the FARC withdraw to camps to transition into civilian life, paramilitary groups will occupy areas of the countryside previously controlled by the guerrillas, pushing out activists and small farmers. While the peace accord with the FARC has brought a lot of hope and new negotiations have started with another guerrilla group, many in Colombia are starting to lose faith that lasting peace can be achieved in the near future. Leonfredi has no doubt that political violence still exists in Colombia. He survived six assassination attempts over the past four years. The last one just came five months ago, when a group of armed men chased and shot at his SUV. Had the car not been bulletproof, I would have been killed. The death threats and murders could have a two-pronged effect on the peace process with the FARC. First of all, the murders could be interpreted by guerrillas as a sign that leftist politics will still be met with violence. That might encourage some guerrillas to leave the transition camps where they're currently living and preparing to give up their weapons. Secondly, the murders could prompt a new wave of armed struggle from the people being targeted. So what are people left to do? We are getting information that farmers are thinking of arming themselves to defend their lives. The ELN rebel group, which started peace talks with the government in February, 
recently accused the Colombian army of working along a paramilitary group in the aggressions against social leaders in Western Colombia, where the largest number of activists have been killed. I asked Leonfredi whether he's afraid he might die in this new wave of political violence. I say they've taken so much from us that they took away fear as well. My desire to beat these political mafias grows every day. I have my security team and take the necessary precautions, but I think it's better to live and die for something than for nothing. You're listening to Making Contact, and today we're looking at the peace process occurring between two different major revolutionary groups, the FARC in Colombia and the National Democratic Front in the Philippines. After producer Luis Gallo reported his story, I asked Luis about some of the deeper similarities between both countries and their pursuits for peace. And I think it's the same thing that is happening in Colombia. Uh, this peace deal is important to be implemented and to not be put at risk by these killings because it's, it's supposed to be, it's meant to change the structure in which Colombia has been run for centuries. In a sense, like we still have a, a system that is rooted on the legacy of colonialism, on a few landowning families owning most of the land, and most people being, you know, peasants or being poor, uh, and also the the opportunities to to um, to get out of poverty are, are you know are so slim, and when especially when so many so 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 little people control so much of the wealth and the resources in the country. So in a sense, a lot of these implementations and a lot of, of um, the agrarian reform that goes along with, with the peace agreement, as well as the representation from the left and from uh, you know these type of community groups in rural areas are key to changing the system which you know inspired these groups to, to go and you know become armed and organized and start an armed struggle. At the end of the day, both Colombia and the Philippines were, you know, colonized, where the legacy of colonialism still remains, and inequality is the root of so many of these problems, right? The roots of the problem in Colombia are uncannily similar to the roots of the problem in the Philippines. So, technology is in such a state that one could film and produce a semi-decent news broadcast. Complete with a green screen, hanging from the trees, and post it online for audiences to watch all around the world. And do all this from way deep in the jungle of an unspecified area in the Philippines. That's where the New People's Army, the armed wing of the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, are generating and propagating their word. And they're kind of having fun with it. Not quite the image anyone would expect for the 48-year running armed rebellion, one of the longest in Asia. The group started as the armed wing of the Communist Party of the Philippines in 1969, led by Jose Maria Sison. Since then, they've reformed and have become part of a coalition of civil society and human rights organizations, now called the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, or the NDFP. But the armed conflict is closer to resolution with the current Philippine president, Rodrigo Duterte, 
as the NDFP headed to the next round of peace talks with the government of the Philippines. The terms are broken down into a 12-point program and are long-time commitments responding to conditions of a post-colonial country battling with poverty, government corruption, and fighting for basic human rights. The terms of the peace agreement range from replacing the current government with a democratic coalition government to the redistribution of lands as well as the industrialization of the country. Over the years, attention and negative stigma towards the rebellion has waned, but the deaths persist. Anti-mining activists, school teachers, humanitarian aid workers, and even priests have fallen victim. And in the last year, indigenous tribal leaders and tribespeople called the Lumad in the mountains of Mindanao, the southern region of the Philippines. The fifth round of peace talks between the Philippine government and the National Democratic Front of the Philippines is to take place in Norway. And to bring more context and complexity to the peace talks are Edre Olalia and Christina Palabai. I met with the both of them at their stop at an Oakland church as part of a national peace tour. Edre Olalia is a member of the International Legal Advisory Team and a legal consultant to the peace negotiating panel of the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. Edre, President Duterte's drug war is nearly front and center of all things Philippines. How do you see this particular state-sponsored violence conflicting with the peace process? The problem in the Philippines is not only the drug menace, in fact, it is only a manifestation of a deeper problem in society, which is lack of uh, economic uh, opportunities, a public health system, and, and the very poor and even uh, skewed police uh, and prosecutorial system, the criminal justice, it's also a health problem. The New People's Army or any other resistance movement in the Philippines is not waging war because of the drug problem. No? It is waging war because of decades and decades of uh, oppression and exploitation and the present uh, avenues by, by which they uh, can be resolved uh, are not enough. They're not advocate as far as they are concerned. So the peace negotiations is important. Some critics of the leftist organizations say there is a lack of response to Duterte's drug war because of the peace talk negotiations. We will not contest, we will not disagree with any criticism or any efforts to stop the horrible execution. But we will tell you that put it in the right context, in the right perspective. This is no defense of the Duterte. No, not at all. It is really uh, seeing it through the lenses of a clear understanding of what is Philippine society. Uh, the drug problem in the Philippines is horrible, all right? It's a scourge, you know? It's a, it's a cancer. We know that. Everybody's affected uh, uh, one way or the other. But it is uh, equally horrible, if not uh, more than horrible, that uh, the solution is the, the, the shortcut solution. Uh, without due process, without proper investigation, without uh, the rehabilitative uh, approach of trying to make them productive in society. Uh, the, the problem is the double standard. Uh, the, the small petty users who are victims themselves are the ones being targeted rather than uh, the big drug lords. Uh, the problem of corruption where generals are involved and local government officials, that's bad. There are no two minds about that, all right? It's a no-brainer, right? It's very sexy, I know that. The Western press uh, has covered it. Uh, because it's very sexy. The government officials are, are, in, are, are concerned. Uh, even the opposition is, is uh, uh, very uh, loud about it because they have their own agenda, of course. No? But the point is, the drug problem is not 
the root of the injustice in the Philippines. That is not the root of the armed conflict. Uh, you are you are going to overshadow or camouflage uh, the real situation if you if your only radar is with respect to the drug problem, but you turn the other way when there is so much injustice under your very nose. Okay, so what is the root of the armed conflict and rebellion? Uh, ultimately, it's a question of why you don't have any basic industries when you have minerals. When you have gold, you have uh, nickel, you have deuterium, you have uh, everything. No? Uh, it's a question why um, you have to uh, export a lot of uh, products. When in fact, uh, you are a producer of so many, so many of these raw materials. No? Uh, it's a question of why you have to import uh, rice or why, why, why your fishermen or fisher folk are hungry when you have 7,000 islands surrounded by bodies of water which are very rich in aquatic resources. And there's a question why you cannot determine your own political and economic uh, life. No? And uh, either uh, multilateral organizations or other uh, foreign countries uh, are the ones having a say. So it, it's, it's historically rooted in injustice. No? Historically rooted uh, by the daily uh, violence of uh, poverty, the daily violence of injustice, the daily violence of uh, discrimination, the daily violence of uh, forced migration, the daily violence of uh, discrimination against uh, women, the elderly, the LGBTQI. Uh, it's a discrimination against indigenous peoples uh, in their ancestral domain. So there are a lot, it's, it's a whole list of uh, ills of society. But ultimately, it's a question of uh, depriving the people of a decent, uh, honorable, and productive life. Christina Palabay is the Secretary General of Karapatan, or the Alliance for the Advancement of People's Rights in the Philippines. The peace talks address major economic and systemic issues in the Philippines. And while the peace talks are moving forward in a way not seen previously, the journey has been long and costly since the initial peace talks began in the late 1980s. Given the erratic rhythm of talks and in the current unknown balance of power in the Pacific, where exactly does the hope reside when you have a president that operates wildly different than previous administrations? Well, to the credit of the Duterte government, um, its openness in engaging uh, the NDF in the peace negotiations can be measured or is seen as a positive sign, especially since one, it has reaffirmed uh, previously signed agreements with the NDF, those concerning human rights and international humanitarian law, and uh, the Hague Joint Declaration, many other agreements that make the peace process uh, go on. Secondly, it's it's one of the f well, actually, it's the it's the I think it's the only uh, administration which has recognized the existence of political prisoners, compared to the previous administrations from the time of Marcos to recently the Benigno Aquino administration. They all denied the existence of political prisoners. So. To Duterte's credit, he knows the reason why there are political prisoners and uh, the justness of uh, their causes. Uh, thirdly, uh, there is also a positive development in terms of crafting the social and economic um, agenda or agreement in the peace negotiations. Both parties uh, in the last round of the peace talks um, agreed to uh, um, uphold the principle of free land distribution 
as a cornerstone of uh, the agreement on, uh, on, on agrarian reform, which is actually a very significant agreement because so far, uh, no administration has acknowledged even the existence of continuing feudal exploitation of farmers. So I, I think these are opportunities, big opportunities for the people's movement to um, advance our struggle in the various arenas available. But it can only be through a continuing um, radical uh, and comprehensive struggle that these, um, these ideals would be realized. Yeah. Um, the struggle across the peace tables are, is, is one venue, but it should contribute towards building the people's movements and their aspiration for just and lasting peace. Then what is beyond the peace talks? Any regime, any president, even maybe an, up to the Duterte presidency, has not and probably will not address the real problems and will not pursue the kind of change that the people want. You know? We can get that power. We can claim that power. What I'm, I'm saying is that regardless of the faces of those in government, we should always uh, take the opportunity to strengthen our movements. So with or without Duterte, <laughs> and probably we'll get to that point where Duterte will be fully made accountable by the people themselves, not by the UN, <laughs> not through any institution, not even the US government, but by the people themselves, then that is real justice. And building that kind of movement is a challenge, as well as, uh, I think, an exciting and um, invigorating experience, not only for the people's movement in the Philippines, but also of peoples worldwide. I'm cutting my visit here to be with my countrymen, and I will deal with the problem once I arrive. But let me just uh, tell everybody that uh, I have declared martial law for Mindanao. How long? Well, well I, uh, yeah, how, how, how? It would take a year to do it, and we will do it. If it's uh, over uh, within a month, then I'd be happy. <coughs> Pero ang martial law is martial law, ha? So, kayong mga kababayan ko, you have experienced martial law. It would, it would not be any different from what uh, the President Marcos did. Uh, I'd be, be harsh. I was asked one time, I think it was during the campaign to uh, La Salle, I was asked how I would deal uh, with terrorism, and I said I would be harsh. And sinabi ko nga sa lahat, do not force my hand into it. I have to do it to, to preserve the Republic of the Philippines and the Filipino people. The 
peace talks are now in serious jeopardy and have been abruptly halted as President Duterte has declared martial law in Mindanao, the southern region of the Philippines. He did so as an attempt to regain control of the city Marawi, the site of a battle between a militant Islamic group identified as the Maute group defending their leader, a wanted terrorist. The NDFP has recently responded to President Duterte's order for martial law by declaring that the NPA intensify operations. You know, we didn't get to address it, but how do you think the current U.S. President, number 45, and his foreign policy affect the peace process in Colombia and the Philippines? How does narco-trafficking keep things unstable in Colombia? How does the current socio-political climate in Venezuela affect Colombia and the rest of South America? How are the tensions with North Korea informing policy around China? How is China's expansion in the region near the South China Sea disrupting the balance of power? Let us know what you think at radioproject.org. And that's it for Making Contact. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Marie Che, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez are our producers. Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement manager. And Vera Tykolsker is our development associate. Like us on Facebook under Making Contact and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm RJ Lozada, and thank you for listening to Making Contact.